Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Project MedTech. I'm your host, Dwayne Mancini. As always, if you need anything from the podcast or would like to suggest a future guest, please email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. This is another episode of MedTech Money powered by Project MedTech. This is a special series by Project MedTech where we have partnered with Mr. MedTech himself, Giovanni Loricella, in a series of podcast episodes focusing on money in the MedTech space. Giovanni's guest today is Reinhard Krickel from Phagogenesis. In this episode, Giovanni and Reinhard discuss raising capital as a first-time CEO in Europe, lessons learned along the way, raising capital from Nestle, various strategies he deployed, and more. So without further ado, Giovanni's discussion with Reinhard Crickle. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Reinhard, thank you very much for being here. This is MedTech Money, the podcast series, which is powered by Project MedTech and sponsored by Lifeblood Capital. And the reason why we're here and the purpose of why this podcast even exists is I've talked to thousands of MedTech entrepreneurs and investors around the world. And what I've discovered is that there's real no silver bullet or specific formula about how to raise or invest capital in MedTech. And so my goal here is to extract insights and anecdotal stories from investors, bankers, entrepreneurs like yourself, so that we can help those who can benefit from the information and also for those generations of entrepreneurs and investors to come. And so what I imagine this audience listening in on us today is a mixture of experts who have been there and done that before or novices, first time people in CEO positions or raising capital. And what I wanted to extract is your story, insights, advice, so that we can share with what I imagine that first time founder or CEO, and they have no clue on what lies ahead of them on this journey of raising capital. So I thought the best place to start was learning from experienced professionals like yourself. And the reason why you and I are here together, Reinhardt, is because you have a very unique background that I can't wait to get the story out there for those who are listening in. Um, but being a entrepreneur, running a med tech company in Europe, having raised capital before, I want to get that story out there. And also having a multinational company at this point, going through a commercialization phase and raising that larger style round as well. So that's why we're here. But before we get into your background, I have two open-ended questions that I wanted to kick off this discussion with to get a little bit of engagement going on, once again, for those listening. And the first one is, do you believe that people and money are the lifeblood of a med tech startup? Why or why not? And am I missing else or am I missing anything else important? Well, thanks uh, first and foremost, Giovanni, for inviting me into this session. Um, obviously, uh, I benefit a lot myself from uh, these kind of podcasts or um, sharing of experience. So I'm happy to contribute if this is of any interest for anybody. Um, so let's, let's dive into it. And uh, right away into your question, I totally believe people are, this is what it's all about, um, because it's really, um, people are the most important assets. Um, I've just seen it again uh, in, in several of my discussion with investors, is they need to be convinced of the team, that the team is capable to bring an idea forward. Um, I also sense that it's, it's, you know, the type of people, but also the diversity of the team. And of course, diversity, uh, but still a diverse, but still a team which extremely works well together, um, which, which makes a difference. And so I'm, I'm always been taking a lot of pride of working with great people. And I think that's that what drives things along. Of course, and I think I've heard that before, um, money is going to follow um, the good ideas plus the good people. So of course, money is in the end making it happen, but uh, it will come if, if you have the right people with the right inspiration, the right work ethics and, and motivation and good team spirit. So I'm going to spoil it a little bit, but having come from a corporate background 
and then taking over a med tech startup and having that entrepreneurial experience now leading that organization and watching it and having been there for years at this point and enabling it to grow. There's been some war stories. There's been some great celebratory stories and now a, a couple of rounds of capital that you've helped raise. Um, if you knew what you know now about being a med tech entrepreneur, would you do it all over again or why, why not? Is there anything you do differently? Well, hundred percent would do it again. I mean, uh, this is this is the fun of 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 doing the job. Um, number one, you know, having been in corporate, yes, that has been my initial life, and I'm happy to tell a bit more about that later on. Um, but but also, I had the the privilege to even the corporate world have a little bit of an entrepreneurial life because I was always at the pioneering front. In this case of Medtronic, I were allowed to uh, be at uh, therapy areas which were just actually being developed by my by Medtronic itself. So really, kind of have already tested uh, the entrepreneurial spirit and and how it is to build something up new and loved it. But at the same time, also then uh, being able to after some great learning within corporate Medtronic, which by the way I really appreciate, was a good employer, a good coach, a good um, mentor, uh, and allowed me to get a lot of my gain a lot of my experience uh, in many ways. Uh, but then, of course, doing it now as an entrepreneur, really in the startup world, is how to say is 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 the peak of it. Um, is so enjoyable. And and people at the time I remember still were asking me, so are you crazy? Why are you leaving the golden cage? Uh, uh, as I see it, uh, the corporate world where everything is, is seems so easy and straightforward uh, to go into a, a risky startup world. And I I don't see it this way to be honest. Um, number one is also a corporate world isn't risk free. Um, in fact, there have been a lot of uh, co-workers who kind of uh, were uh, with me at Medtronic at the time who actually left the company since, but not on their own will, but actually they were made to leave because, you know, things are changing and probably if you're not adjust quickly enough, you're not the right person, the right job anymore. So if you're not anyway agile in the way you are and think, or even the safest job probably is not safe anymore and you were made redundant or whatever. So it's, it's, there is no safe, safe bet. You know, you always have to be open to new things uh, new and, and open to change specifically. And in the startup world, of course, the risk is probably a different one, but of course it's also great because you have so much more uh, freedom uh, and you have so much uh, faster decision pathways. It's much so much more creativity. Um, and so this, this, I would never regret doing it. I mean, I was already thinking, what if my company has been acquired again by a corporate world? And, you know, what would it be to be back in corporate? I think, you know, I, I could good, could uh, could be there for, for a little bit and also a little bit you know, smell uh, the corporate world again. But I think I wouldn't stay there long um, because it's just uh, once you once you have that, once you have enjoyed that, you probably would not easily go back. So you've been bit by the entrepreneurial bug. But the bug. Yes, I heard that bug uh, <laughs> is out there. And definitely that's the case. So now we've heard your voice, we've heard some of your insights and where you've come from, but let's dig a little bit deeper into that. Let me op ask this open-ended question. Reinhard, who are you? Where did you come from? How did you build yourself up to where you are today? Let us know who you are and then how you became CEO of Phagenesis. And once we get there, we'll talk about Phagenesis. What a big question. Um, uh, who am I? Um, I, I focus it on a few professional aspects, if I may. And so, so probably the easiest to understand me is, is going a little bit through my through my CV or at least the important milestones. Is well, number one, I'm I'm, I'm born and raised in Austria, so uh, Vienna, Austria. So that's probably also important in, in the global medtech world. Um, but lived in different places through my career, but uh, never left Europe. Um, but I've been uh, living in Switzerland. I've been living in Germany uh, and in, in uh, different parts of Austria. Now I'm back to Austria. Um, I've uh, done uh, a solid engineering education, so I have a master's in electrical engineering. Um, but already uh, looking back uh, at university, I realized uh, at, the, at the last years of university, um, I was the one actually ending up managing projects. And I had those tech geeks um, who were my friends and, and collaborators who actually did all the coding and did all the work and did all the real techie stuff. And I said, that's probably telling me something or where I'm probably good at and where I'm actually not as good is, is you know, there were these techie geeks who kind of love to go into detail and that was their day in and out. And I love to kind of 
have that project management role, kind of had the uh, the communication to the professors, made sure that this project is positioned well, um, and that was really kind of what I did. So that's that told me something. And after some research uh, into one of, uh, one of my first medtech project at the time, which was an iRobot, um, I left university and actually joined Medtronic. That was in the year 2000. Um, and in my first entrepreneurial role, because Medtronic at the time had rolled out quite a few neurological treatments, treatments like uh, deep brain stimulation, spinal cord stimulation, uh, and implantable pumps. And in the west of Austria, that wasn't developed. So that was something uh, in Vienna, yeah, yes, but not in the west of Austria. That's, that's the nice skiing part of Austria where all the nice alpine areas are. So I never lived there, but our, but of course I've been there on vacation. So the first thing I joined when joining Matronic is I moved the family, my wife and uh, at the time my, my one kid, and by now it's two kids, but uh, uh, we moved to Innsbruck uh, in the west of Austin, the Alpine areas. And, and I started uh, in my, my commercial venture, so to speak, because I had to build that whole neurological business. I made everything wrong in the first year. Uh, let's put it like that. Uh, <laughs> when I say that is, is you know, really, uh, I went to the people uh, who, who really were nice to me or uh, invited me for a cup of coffee. Um, but I realized after a few months, these are the nice guys, but not the guys who move things. Um, the guys who move things are the, 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 the ones who are not so nice to you are actually very challenging. Uh, but once you actually uh, have convinced them things are moving and you make revenue and, and the world is in good order. Um, so that's what I learned of the year. Then I broke all the sales records and it was really fast growing. And then uh, um, that was also uh, catching the attention of Medtronic's European headquarter. And so I was promoted after a few years in 2015, uh, no, sorry, 2005, jumping too far, uh, 2000 to 2005, Medtronic Austria, and I was promoted to European headquarter in Switzerland. Uh, so the first move of the family outside of Austria, uh, went to a beautiful Lac Le Mans area, Lake Geneva, uh, into the Lausanne area, really nice. Uh, French part of Switzerland. Next challenge, of course, I can't speak French, but uh, of course, challenges are exciting things uh, to spark your curiosity and learn. Um, so in the Medtronic headquarter, I was then allowed to uh, go more into strategic works um, of their product manager and then our marketing manager and basically our business lead or business head for deep print stimulation for many years for Medtronic, which was exciting because Europe and, and for sure, many are aware of deep brain stimulation uh, for the treatment of Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders. Uh, at a time where it's getting more and more mature uh, and also um, more and more exciting for competitors. Um, so it was about uh, innovating that business and Europe was on the forefront. So at that was a time also where Europe was always one step ahead, given the easy regulations in Europe. Uh, versus the United States. So we actually were at the forefront of, of building stuff and driving innovation at the first rechargeable, fully implantable device, uh, which we launched at the time uh, for the competition, kept our 95% market share with a lot of pride um, and uh, exciting times. Um, and then, uh, though I felt it's, it's again time to move on, Medtronic did sponsor my executive MBA uh, at IMD in Lausanne, which by the way, is, is somebody I, something I can recommend everybody to do because that was about um, 10 years after I finished my studies, uh, my, my engineering studies. Uh, and actually, it's something I, I continue doing now is uh, to kind of, after 10 years, go into some serious, how to say, education program where you learn but also question yourself. Um, because the executive MBA at IMD in Lausanne was, was a milestone in my career, which um, specifically if you survive it well, uh, changes you as a person, but of course also uh, as a confident leader, because it's, it's really not only do you uh, learn the language of finance and strategy, but also you kind of get to know yourself better because you need to rip yourself apart basically, uh, and then build yourself up, understanding the strengths but also understanding your weaknesses. Um, but also uh, within 18 months uh, of the executive MBA, you learn all the nights and read thousands of books, do a lot of trips just for this MBA. I did lead a full team at Medtronic. I had uh, uh, two kids and my wife to also kind of keep in balance. Uh, so after these 18 months uh, and surviving it without a divorce, uh, many of these ventures actually I heard uh, executive MBAs end with divorces. Um, so without a divorce, uh, uh, 
you know, going back and and uh, looking back, it's it's really one of these periods where say, well, if, if this didn't kill me, nothing is going to kill me. Um, and it's just you need to kind of be well organized and and be be uh, full of motivation to go through that period. So then uh, after that period, um, I was offered yet another opportunity. Actually, I was offered a list of opportunities. Um, and and that's probably also what speaks to me because they you know gave me you know you could go into this business from the cardiac world this and this and this but then they are Medtronic had just acquired um, a startup for nearly a billion uh, that was a, a Silicon Valley based startup called Ardian um, and Renal Innovation um, quite known to a lot of people because that's an interesting business case on its own right um, at the time Medtronic I think had just paid about 850 million for a company which just didn't have more than just a base station and, and, and a funny catheter for renal innovation. Um, but a lot of hope that this could completely revolutionize the hypertension in the blood pressure market. Um, and uh, they had selected one um, test market really, um, and that was Germany. And so without, within all these opportunity I was, I was presented with, I said, this is what I wanna do because this is really challenging, completely unknown, high visibility, something building up from scratch again, as it's been integrated into Medtronic, big batch from Medtronic, uh, and now Germany being the test market, that's what I want. So that's the next job we did, moved to Dusseldorf, um, and then kind of built this up further, but also integrated it into the corporate world, which is a challenge on its own, because it's not only running your business independent, but also it needs to kind of match into the portfolio with Medtronic uh, and the other business opportunities. Um, and um, in order to then, fully integrated in a coronary business that was before who know the audience story, know it failed or, uh, to a certain extent in 2014, 15 for other reasons, a failed study in the US. Actually, it's now being trying to come back in the moment uh, on the audience side, but uh, I left Medtronic in 2013, end of 2013, but everything was still in good order. Did my assignment, was offered an, an even more interesting, more hierarchical job in Medtronic. Um, you know, 100 reportees and, you know, uh, a lot of revenue portfolio. But that was the time where I decided, and that again probably speaks to me uh, or who I am, is to said, okay, no, this is not what I'm up for. I'm, I'm not the guy who kind of needs the higher hierarchy, who actually needs a lot of reportees, who needs that kind of status of a big, huge organization. What I want is... Uh, building something and, and working in a environment where I believe I can make a difference, where I enjoy working, um, where I can have the passion to, to kind of make a difference. Um, and uh, yeah, also something which actually drives my curiosity. And I don't want to be arrogant, but the Medtronic would have been more of the same. So that wasn't attractive. So I said, okay, what's now next? And I always look for at my assignments, kind of my compensation package is not only the salary, it's also the learning I can get from that opportunity. So that's part of my compensation package. And even in my career, I've accepted uh, to move uh, to, to uh, compensation salary positions, which are not going up or probably even going slightly down um, if the overall learning opportunity um, was positive and hence the overall compensation package salary. So monetary compensation plus learning compensation was, was uh, an improvement. Um, but in this case, startup world, uh, and then the whole startup journey started, real startup journey, because when I was uh, taking that job, um, I was supposed to commercialize for a company called Vagenesis, which I, by the way, can talk forever as well, because I'm very passionate about it, but it's probably another story. Um, and uh, so when taking over the commercial responsibility in the company, it turned out that things are not quite right. Um, there's a few challenges within this company, uh, a study potentially failing. Um, the CEO that summer 2014, when I joined it, was asked to leave by the investors uh, and step down. I was asked to step up uh, and jump into the cold water yet again and see if we can rescue the company. We were running out of money, uh, didn't have any time, or were challenged really on the strategy, everything we did in the past, uh, and had about six months to kind of get back on track, uh, regain or re get the get investors a trust back, have a strategy and move on. I'll probably stop it here for a sec, but that's now the startup period which comes from there. So that brings you to taking over for Genesis. And, and I'll, I have questions that will lead into the whole capital raising topic, but so we also have some context what is for Genesis as a company, like the, the type of product? And, and you can just give us high level, but where is the company situated? That kind of stuff. Just what is for Genesis? 
Well, and you have to guide me because, as I said, I can talk forever about it because it's the coolest company, of course, ever. Um, but <laughs> for Genesis is uh, based in Manchester, United Kingdom. Um, the reason for that, because that's where the founders of the company have been. Also, to be clear, I'm not a founder. Um, I just went into the company to commercialize it and, that, uh, and then took over as a CEO. Um, a brilliant guy called Professor Shaheen Hamdi uh, from Manchester University, uh, a great person. Um, he actually came up with the idea uh, to better understand how swallowing functions and in fact, to understand uh, why in certain circumstances swallowing does not function, specifically after stroke, for example, uh, so called swallowing disorders or dysphagia and how he could improve it. And he figured out that he could improve it in fact uh, with uh, neurostimulation. Uh, in this case, uh, it's, it's what I would call the transient way of neurostimulation because while it's centrally been stimulated by introducing a catheter through the nose to the pharynx, uh, we only stimulate for three days which kickstarts the brain to regain swallowing control, retrain the brain in three days is all, or a quick word, um, and uh, retrain the brain in three days in order to pick up swallowing function. And then the catheter has been removed. So it's, it's a very elegant way of doing that because it, it triggers neuroplasticity in the brain so that the brain recovers the swallowing function. That's what we started initially. That was kind of stroke, post-stroke patients um, who had, um, probably been in a rehab setup um, and uh, really because of not being able to swallow, had se severe issues of nutrition intake, needed an internal feeding tube uh, or a thickened uh, modified diet. Um, and, and that was the initial focus of the company. What the company has transitioned to over the years though is, is, is slightly uh, different because now we position ourselves in the acute setup and the ICU because what's probably not that well known is is um, the, the issues, the complications, dysphagia creates in the ICU. And that's probably a quick story I will tell um, because, uh, you know, keep that in mind when patients are on the vent um, for various reasons, could be because of a stroke, uh, could be because of any other reasons, an open heart surgery, COVID nowadays, uh, and the needed uh, mechanical ventilation, um, they either uh, have an oral intubation or specifically if uh, they have to go to prolonged mechanical ventilation are being tracheotomized more invasively. Um, so in other words, they get a breathing tube. Um, once they're off the ventilator, which happens hopefully sooner, sometimes later. So in, in other words, they're, they're able to breathe autonomously again. Um, the next step, of course, is to wean them off the respirator. And then everybody thinks, great, now the, the guys out of the hospital are next step. Unfortunately, that's, that's not the reality for a large proportion of patients. 70% seven zero of those which are tracheotomized between 20 and 40% for those which are intubated, that you can't actually easily remove the uh, breathing tube because what would happen if you remove the breathing tube is the patient would drown in their own secretions because they have no swallowing capability anymore. So um, basically they would aspirate their own secretions. Um, and of course this would cause aspiration pneumonia and probably would, uh, would be, if not managed, uh, a very high risk of aspiration pneumonia and death. Um, and so that's a huge risk and it's a huge burden, but um, dysphagia could just not be treated in the level of the ICU because um, in order to treat dysphagia, to retrain the brain in a conventional way, that's great work of speech and language pathologists, as they're called, but it takes weeks and months to retrain the brain. It's a very cumbersome process, one step forward, two steps back, because basically they have to challenge the patients with re swallows. But then, of course, the patient swallows, probably aspirates, two steps back, patient stabilizes, one step forward. So it's a very cumbersome process of retraining the brain. We have completely reinvented that retraining the brain. Uh, through neurostimulation, as I said before, by very strong uh, input into the brain, which actually triggers the brain to reorganize itself within these three days I mentioned before. Um, and that's, that's, of course, a paradigm change because all of a sudden, at the level of the ICU, dysphagia can be treated. And so all these risks of the patient drowning in their own saliva, in their own secretions, not being able to remove in the breathing tubes, are actually being mitigated by treating the course. Uh, and that's, that's, of course, exciting. And I don't have to tell you that COVID um, and, and uh, overall attention about ICU bed capacities and the lack thereof um, is of course a fantastic business opportunity for us to come in now because I don't have to explain to anybody 
why this is uh, important that we get patients out of the ICU faster by managing these complications for the first time ever, um, because you know, it's clear to everybody and so the business case is pretty straightforward. So this is exciting for us. And uh, that's also why we are completely repositioned our company recently. So that's that's what the technology is as well. But in terms of the status of the company, um, you've yep. achieved CE mark. You're looking towards the United States. Like, where are we with that? And then also at this point, you are a CEO living in Austria. The company's based in UK, running a European organization, but also putting your feet over in the United States as well. We could talk about that. Um, and leading a commercial effort, which then will segue into that capital raising process. Absolutely. So the company um, has Emacs since several years already, since 2012. Um, so that's great. So we have our, also in Europe what we call a commercial uh, test market. It was really in order to show that we can earn money with it, um, that we also um, you know, can better test our products. For various reasons, we only will commercialize, fully commercialize now. Um, but we have our, had the, the, the go-to-market in Europe since a while. Uh, but also now plan to have uh, FDA approval um, by September this year. So that's, that's exciting for us. Um, specifically, as we have breakthrough device, um, while we are under the Novo Pass, uh, already very far down the road. So it looks like uh, we're well on track to, to open the US as a commercial opportunity for us. Um, yeah, you know, as you also a little bit referenced our, us being a truly global company. So yes, you know, the core of the team is in the UK, is in Manchester. That's really kind of our back office. But our, even before COVID times, you know, we, we had to find good means of communicating uh, uh, across the world, remotely including, uh, because uh, of our commercial folks are in, in, in mainland Europe. So Germany, uh, Austria, um, and of course, we already had started building a small US team some time ago, which we of course now are further strengthen both are from a commercial uh, side as well as a back office side. So this, this truly global and truly kind of uh, being creative of keeping people together, which actually are thousands of miles apart, um, has already been uh, something we, we dealt with before COVID. COVID of course have, has helped us, how, um, how to say, to, to get also technological advice, smarter and more efficient of doing that. Um, it's a little bit embarrassing now I'm leading a UK company. I haven't been to the UK for 18 months now um, because it's just not possible to go there uh, with a lot of uh, quarantine restrictions. Um, but it seems to work out. And actually, it feels like I have more contact to my team in the UK than before, because before I was actually commuting every second week uh, for a few days to the UK. And now I haven't done that for 18 months. But we see each other over Teams or, or whatever it is, Zoom, um, twice a day or several times a day. Um, and, and so actually it works quite well. Um, with the caveat, I believe that we knew each other before. So I think our people who knew who you know before to just continue a relationship uh, over this period uh, via Zoom and Teams is pretty simple and easy. Um, it's a little bit different if you know somebody um, only via kind of Zoom and Teams, which which is by the way true for, for two of us, Gianni. Uh, That's you know, very true. We've never known each other for years. Even before COVID. <laughs> That's true. We've known each other for years and we still have never met in person, but I feel right. like I know based on all of our calls like this. Exactly. So you, you get you get a, an, an impression of a person, but then still it's it's really funny if you then meet of these oh, he's pretty tall, actually. Oh, <laughs> and things like that, you know. I said, it, you, you, still, you still know a person until, you know, from the head to, to, to the belly maximum. Um, and, and that's it. And, and all of a sudden you see the real person. So it's kind of funny. Um, but yeah, so, so that, that works out pretty well. I will say the only challenging, really challenging part when we had to hire people in the US um, and in the hiring process, I was not able to meet people face to face. Um, and that's really tough because I think you, you, in order to really get to know a person and get, get a feeling about that person, other than just, uh, um, you know, what you see on paper, um, it, it's really difficult without seeing the person face to face. So you're in a commercial phase right now, at least expansion, like we talked about. You joined in 2014 officially? That's right. Okay. So you've been with the company for now seven years. Over that time, now you're leading a commercial expansion, which we'll get to now, but um, how many capital raises have you seen or how have you kept the, the company afloat for seven years on this capital side? Yeah, um, 
So to, to again, uh, just visualize uh, the pathway is the company was already actually founded in 2007. So it's uh, 14 years in the game. Um, but um, what happened in 2014 was the company was thinking they're ready for commercialization, but the big landmark trial didn't work out for reasons which we now know very, very well. And we know are not related to the product, but the type of study we set up, the way we executed the study um, didn't work out. Um, since then, we have done many more studies actually confirming very well um, the clinical benefit and safety of our device. That's what got us back on track. But that's also why it's a, an unusually long trajectory, if I may say like that, because we had a failure in between and had kind of built it from scratch again from 2014 onwards. Um, we found then um, um, a little bit unusual path as well, because in 2016, um, after I got the company back on track um, with our existing investors and, and some a little bit of new money, um, small money though in, in general. So it was just enough for us to kind of show um, what we can do and get us back on track. In 2016, I was uh, getting um, Nestle Health Science on board as a strategic. You know, this is about swallowing. Just for those listeners to know, when you say Nestle, you're talking about what the whole world knows as the chocolate company, right? Exactly. It was about to say and clarify <laughs> the chocolate water and coffee company, I have to say. Uh, what the heck are they doing in MedTech? Uh, exactly. That's what I was asking myself. Um, so, so basically what they have is what's called Nestle Health Science. Uh, it's medical nutrition. So it's kind of still close to their genes, um, but a little bit touches, of course, the medical world more than, than you would imagine from Nestle. Um, and it's also close to swallowing uh, in a way. Uh, and swallowing disorders. So that's where our therapy comes to play um, because, uh, because metal nutrition, swallowing, swallowing disorders, Nestle was interested to eventually consider uh, broadening the portfolio into, into Medtech. And uh, they invested heavily into us to run a, a very thorough clinical program. So really um, uh, continue on, on big clinical studies um, instead of yet fully commercializing, really building the foundation, building the clinical evidence, building the uh, um, regulatory clearances, uh, both in Europe, which we had already, but also then preparing it for the United States, because one way we could have played that uh, from the perspective of 2016, the Nestle would have acquired the company um, some years down the road, which by the way, did not happen um, because Nestle uh, since actually realized that probably Medtech, probably no surprise to people who were in Medtech, uh, is probably not the best playing field for them. Um, they can do a lot of things very, very well, but MedTech, they weren't so successful. I won't go into detail. They did a few other projects unrelated to us, which didn't work out that well and they divested it since uh, and spun it off. So so basically when, when we got ready, when we had our foundations built uh, to kind of change now from a clinical stage company rather uh, with a really good body of evidence and have the the, the regulatory clearance or at least the pathway pretty 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 straightforward um, and turn into a fully commercial company, which could actually have triggered an acquisition by Nestle. Um, we agreed with them. It's probably not the right pathway forward. They're probably not going to be the best owner of the company, which I agree with, but which is very fair from them is they kind of keep backing up the company, but in a very kind of minority position now. So they're in the back, they still keep investing a little bit in the company because they believe in the business opportunity, but they kind of decided to not take the company over. So that's why if you want, we actually back to the more traditional startup track because now we have our, um, you know, done our, our commercial, our, our clinical stage, get everything ready. Now we go full commercially. So we went back on the, on the open market, um, got our funding round or get our funding round closed as we speak. Um, and that allows us now to go fully commercial Europe and the United States um, over the next two, three years. So to summarize and clarify that you've been a part of in your seven years, there are two distinct capital raises for the company or has it been more? Well, um, yeah, so this is the third one in a way, because okay. we, we, we start with a bridge funding then Nestle coming on board. And now um, this is the, the a real big VC round. And so you've been a part of a strategic corporate corp, um, capital raise before with Nestle, as you just mentioned, and now it's a traditional VC commercialization round. That's right. Okay. And so if we can focus on that, once again, being a European company, how is that style of raising money? And I'm assuming, well, we've heard the story. This is your first time raising capital 
with the Genesis as a company. So how was that process of raising capital when you first learned about it as a first-time executive? I mean, you've had the executive MBA, you've had the Ardian entrepreneurial experience, albeit within Medtronic. You, you've called yourself a builder. You left Medtronic because you wanted to continue building and not having more of the same. Um, when you jumped into the Genesis as a first-time CEO at this point, how did you even start understanding what raising capital meant? What did you do? Where did you go? Who did you knock on doors with? Like, how did you even start the process? Right. Um, and of course, I, I you know, the, the interesting thing is I, I did raise capital kind of our, um, in the normal world. I did raise capital with a strategic. I did raise capital in COVID, which I think have been uh, <laughs> very different uh, experiences. Um, but the first raise of capital, and, and that's, I think, what, what at least I believe uh, is one of the most important thing is all about trust. Um, because those investors who you try to get the money from need to 100% trust that not only um, you can make it happen and, and you kind of, uh, this dream can become true, but also you are a person who's gonna be upfront and you not have something hide, hide it a bit below the desk um, or hidden behind the desk. Um, because that would, of course, uh, make it difficult. Why I'm saying that is um, probably the first and most important step at the first round was, uh, so with existing investors, um, to kind of get them back on the table, whereas that, in fact, I could have, when that study was about to go wrong um, in 2014, which I briefly mentioned before, I could have just collected another tranche, last tranche of the previous investment round, um, would have gotten the company a little bit forward, um, I could have done it because I was not obliged to kind of report on the study at the time. Um, but I chose another way. I kind of put the cards on the table and said, I will not collect that tranche. I believe there's something very important I need to bring to your attention. Um, and you need, and you might reconsider your investment at the time, but that's the risk I have to take. Um, uh, and, and honestly, that was confirmed later to me. That was probably one of the main reasons why I got the money on board because he said probably other people would have done the contrary, just collect whatever they can get and then see what's happening. But you actually took the risk, but also that means we trust you're going to make it work and you're going to, and we trust if it doesn't work out, you will let us know in time. Um, and, and so basically that, that was one of the most important experiences that, you know, you have a reputation you, you, you bring something here and these VCs need to believe in the idea, but also need to trust that you as a person will not try to fool them, but actually um, with all your best belief in what you're doing, will try to make it work. And so then that led you to, well, let me ask, how did you even come up with the idea of going to a corporate strategic then for the second yeah, round. So, so, so that's a little bit of a history of the company, to be fair, because um, um, already at the time, um, the one we see we had in the round was basically the investor arm of Nestle. So they had a little bit of link to the company already, um, so they were aware of it. And uh, I made a bold move in 2016, uh, together with the team, uh, of course, because we have we had shown that we, on a, after our really a difficult time 2014, we had been able to show uh, in, in 18 months that uh, there's really great data on this new trajectory of intensive care, which I briefly described before. And this is, this is really a, a huge opportunity potentially. Um, and, and Nestle got really interested. And I kind of had one of these bold moves and said, well, you know, because they said, but we want to have the studies run faster. And because in order for us this to be really interested, you know, we, we need to have the evidence so that we can fully commercialize. And I said, well, you know, if you give us the money, we can run the studies and you get what you need. And then we can talk about an acquisition. Um, and then I said, all right. And then well, they're not saying no. Uh, that's interesting. Um, and and so, so we got into this negotiation and they really warmed up for the fact because they, was, they were really keen to see the opportunity at a time, as I said, it really fitted in their strategic um, vision, uh, the mid and long-term vision. So they were uh, willing to invest significant money into the company to allowing us, allowing us to accelerate our clinical program to actually have that ready sooner then if we would have gone step by step, build it up with the next round of VCs and whatever. So that's why they also were willing to go for a bold move themselves because that um, could potentially accelerate and did accelerate our, our whole trajectory in terms of building evidence and building the case. So 
if it wasn't, I mean, yes, there might've been a connection there with Nestle Lymphogenesis prior, but you were the one that said, what about you? If you give us the money, then we can run it. And so that was your concept. It was, I, I will always say our concept um, because, um, you know, that's probably also me. Um, uh, while probably have communicated in the end, um, these kind of things come out of, of a lot of brainstorming with smart people around you. I uh, say, well, we could do this and this. So in the end, I was communicating it, but definitely that was spun out of, of, of a good uh, teamwork of assessing our situation, what can we do? And so now coming to this next round where you are now, commercializing the company over here in the United States. Tell us about that. I mean, if we consider it, especially during COVID, right? So um, a traditional venture capital round, no more Nestle, no more bridge round from existing investors. Clarify me if I'm wrong. Uh, but this whole new big round that you just had to get done or work on, how was that process? I mean, did you have to reach out to European investors? Was it US investors? Was it Far East investors, where do they come from and how did that whole process unfold, like the mechanics of it? Absolutely. Um, so, so to again, uh, give you a little circumstances. So um, in uh, the summer 2020, just about a year ago, uh, in the end, we really decided, Nestle and we decided that we're going to go ahead separately. So without Nestle uh, making an offer for an acquisition, um, which was followed by thorough analysis, if there is a good uh, strategic match or not, uh, which we did together. So it was very collaborative. And uh, we came to the conclusion somewhere, no, we will not go ahead together. The company will set it up separately uh, for full commercialization independently. Um, and that mean, meant basically then uh, in the third quarter this year, uh, th this same year, 2020, uh, I was about to start um, getting money into the company. And, and that was, of course, when, when COVID was, and actually COVID just got worse again uh, towards the autumn. And so I just looked into, so how do you do this? Um, and uh, um, of course, there were some contacts I had. Uh, so I started seriously penetrating my network, but also I was um, looking into investor conferences. And the interesting thing, of course, I think also that was about a time where investors try to figure out how to do this now in COVID times. So I think we were all in a learning mode because my, my observation was in the, third, in the second quarter last year, no, nothing really happened because I think people were still in shock and what's going to happen how do we do this and we can meet face to face and blah, blah, blah. And then in the third quarter, kind of where I started to seriously uh, going into this venture, um, you know, everybody started to figure out, okay, this Zoom and Teams actually starts working out pretty well. So probably we can actually have conversations, get to know each other, make some pitches, uh, in this case online. So I kind of like came just into this whole thing where everybody tried to figure out how this is going to work. Um, and so I was presenting uh, at some of these investor conferences, I remember September, October, um, um, presenting, probably it's a story quite of interest is, I said, this is probably gonna be even more difficult now because we don't meet face to face. Um, I think every pitch is about making an impression. It's not about only your product. Um, it's also about the person as I said before and some connection you need to build, some soft connection. Uh, so in, in a time where you can't do that, so how do you make an impression? How do you make yourself memorable? So I said, I'm probably gonna have this pitch is five to 10 minutes to present the company and to make people hot to kind of embark into that. So I started working with a storyteller, um, which, which I thought is, is something uh, you know, for kids and you know, how to do that and how you explain more lively. And, and, but then uh, uh, you know, through, a, through a project, I got to know a really good storyteller um, who, who does that as a professional coach um, and, and embarked into a project with him. Uh, his name is Neil Baird and a great person, by the way, I can recommend. Uh, and, and he not only gave me the fundamentals of storytelling, but also I really kind of asked him, please challenge me because what I need to reach at, and that's kind of the guidance he was giving to me, is not only do I need to make an impression to these guys, these guys, which are probably going to be investor manager for their funds or whatever it is, um, but these guys need to be able to retell your story a week or two weeks later um, and get all, the, in, all the, the right things and make it kind of memorable for their investment committee. So go one step further. So the story you have to tell, not only the person needs to be attracted by the story and need to kind of uh, like yourself and whatever, make it memorable, but also this, this person has to be able in his own words or her own words to kind of repeat the story a few days, a week, two, three, whatever, months later to his investment or investment committee in the same convincing way. And only when you get a story to that stage, you actually are, have high likelihood to succeed, uh, specifically when you're kind of doing it on a Zoom 
uh, and, and on the screen in front of you and not actually uh, over a beer or whatever. Um, and so, so he helped me quite a lot to kind of um, make it a concise story, um, have the elements in there of, of good storytelling, a good punchline and all these kind of things. Um, and then, then, I, then I went out and uh, I spoke uh, to a lot of European VCs, to a lot of US VCs, um, either through these conferences or then also through recommendations. I mean, I heard that before, um, you know, ideally you have a warm call, not a call call, because, you know, that means that you're already connected, that's already part of, of your homework, that, that you know people who can actually introduce you, which worked out very, very well. So kind of making it step by step, one step further. In the end, I think we, we spoke to about, I think it was about 60 VCs, um, which, is, which is a good number. Um, and uh, it was about balance between Europe and the United States. Um, and a surprisingly large number of VCs would also say I went to the, the diligence. So in the end, I think there was a time where I managed about 15 VCs in the diligence uh, in parallel. So that was that was a stressy time. Um, but yeah, you, you learn you learn as you as you go into that. You improve your pitch. You you have your your next kind of next level deck ready. You kind of have the conversations. Um, you learn from one VC how you actually prepare for the next VC batch pitch better. So that's that's a very intense time, um, but very exciting time because you know you keep improving in, and your pitch gets better and better. Um, so yeah. having having reached out to, to European as well as US VCs, you're a European company, so reaching out to the European VCs, the money's closer to home. Maybe that's a point of interest. However, you're building a team in addition to going commercial in the larger market or a large market here in the United States. Is that aspect more interesting for the US investors? And maybe is that the connection? And so what was your thoughts of like why US and European VCs would be interested in Figenesis? Of course, you know, our perspective as a company was um, to really, as we already have a good European investor base, uh, to probably have uh, a syndicate of a European investor, but definitely a syndicate, including also US investor. That was our plan. Really, you know, what's behind it is that, uh, you know, with a US investor on board, with US becoming our probably key market with breakthrough designation and reimbursement opportunities and stuff, um, it would have been great uh, and had that already a little bit answers that in the end, there's no um, US investor on board, uh, but it would have been great to get a US investor on board just because it's their home market. It's kind of our even additional smart money in the true sense of the world, the word getting on board. Um, this turned out to be difficult. Um, and I, that's what people told me before. Um, but I, you know, I thought I felt so it's worth trying is that um, a European company is just too far away from US investors. What they like to do is kind of uh, um, be with the company in an hour, jump on a plane, two, three hour, whatever max. Uh, ideally, they're even around the corner in, in the valley or whatever, um, so that you can just, if things don't go, put a plan, quickly check what's going on there really. So kind of be close and, and you know, live and breathe what's really going on in the company. Um, and, and yes, for the really huge tickets, probably they would go for a European company because it then pays off, you know, the, the real big North Stars, whatever it is. Um, but for a kind of a company which has a very interesting proposition like ours, but probably is a little bit kind of a smaller one in the moment, um, it, it, it was very difficult for them to make the effort. And here, of course, we were able in the end and are able to rely uh, much more on European investors who, who, of course, closer to this economy. But of course, European investors, I will say, who all have the size to have a strong foothold in the United States. So, um, you know, I can't tell in the moment investors for confidentiality reasons, um, but uh, probably this is going to be announced soon. But these investors are, are European investors, but with very, very strong uh, offices uh, and engagements also in the United States. So that's probably a very good compromise um, because they have the experience. They have still the smart money uh, um, with smart, also including the United States. So you think, and as you mentioned, the uh, America, the US VCs didn't eventually get on board, but you closed around with the European VCs, or at least syndicated around with the European VCs. Is that the same cultural reasons? It's just closer to home? 
I think it's mainly because it's closer to home. Specifically, as I, as I said before, we had to close within our COVID, right? Or we, we actually had all the important conversation within COVID. So I think that probably also might have contributed it because even more so uh, people were made terribly aware is that during COVID, you couldn't even travel from the US to Europe, right? How can I actually figure out if Reinhardt is actually real? Uh, and not an avatar or anything like that. Um, and, and, and of course, that was very different for the European VCs because that's just, you know, take a train um, and, and come over to Austria or I go to their countries and we could at least kind of find a way to, to check each other uh, if we are real or not. So I think that made it probably even more complicated. In the end, we are very happy about the syndicate we've built. And that's also probably something we're saying if you have the choice. Uh, in the end, we had the choice that um, we not only had competitive term sheets, um, so it allowed me to kind of calibrate um, um, those investors I really wanted to have on board kind of to, to a, do a deal level, which was acceptable or by us, um, but also then in the end, make them join forces. Um, so we really fully selected a syndicate. Um, and, and, and that was something I strongly wanted because now, as we as it turned out that we have options, competing term sheets, and and more VCs interested in in the end investing, then we could actually have tickets available. I felt it's really about now getting the quality of that syndicate done. Is meaning you know having great leads, and uh, it's a bit I can't name the, the 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 investors in a moment, but you know really people I'm very convinced of. Um, you know very not only smart, very professional fair, you know, hard negotiators, but solution oriented. So really kind of already through the process of seeing these, these are great people, but also I think the way we now are close around, which is uh, these two co-leads now two, take two thirds of the round, one third each. Um, and then one third is still, um, let's say other private investors or existing investors. Um, and I like that because VCs of course, have to be driven by the performance of their funds. That's that's a primary target. Um, and that's that's the right thing for them to do. And they will make everything to make the company successful, but in the end, that's what they have to look for is the performance of their fund. Uh, private investors, so specifically those, how to say more deep packet private individuals, um, I, I would think, and that's the way I got to know them, they have also another vision behind it because they want to make their money work and kind of uh, grow their money, but they also very often have the, the, the really the mission to, to do something good to society. Uh, so to kind of uh, support a project, which is not just you know, anything, but actually if, if successful, can actually change or contribute to society. And of course, these guys, will be in the end even more loyal. Specific things don't go the right direction. Um, they will not only look for the performance of their funds, they will also look about, so, but does the company still have a chance? And do I still wanna actually make sure that the company survives because I still believe in the bigger cause behind it? Um, and so I'm very happy to, in fact, not only have, and that's a compliment to these investors, not only have great investors which kept investing into the company throughout with 100K tickets uh, and so on and so forth, um, but also that um, we have a big um, Swiss family office joining us now for the first time with a huge ticket um, because it's a good balance now between these VCs who bring smart money, the experience and network, everything. I'm really happy to have them on board, um, but also to have private investors which have another cause as well why they invest, which kind of backs the company up even more in probably difficult times to come, which hopefully is not the case. Typically in US, when you get to larger commercial rounds, for example, like what Phygenesis raised to commercialize there in Europe, even though you're commercializing in the United States right now. Um, typically, those rounds in the in the U.S. they're made up of the bigger VCs, right? You don't typically see family offices and angels get involved in later rounds. You see them earlier rounds, maybe clinical rounds or seed rounds or Series A. Um, is that different in Europe? I mean, do you still see that there's a lot of family offices getting involved in rounds in Europe for these large commercial rounds um, in individual angels, or is it all typical VCs just like it is here in the United States? Um, it's um, tough for me to say what's the big, big picture here. Um, I would say is, is we, we, we actually nearly were going down the path of or going a completely traditional VC round. Uh, you know, even these VCs which are in uh, putting even more money in, or we even had a third and a fourth VC um, are very patiently, very kindly waiting in front of the door to also put a bigger ticket into it. So that could have been uh, just a complete VC round. But as I have then understood, 
that also through our existing investors and through the network that private investors also want to put uh, some tickets into that or put some money into that. I felt this is really not only me, but felt together with the board. This is the better direction for the reason I just said is because now we have best of both worlds. So as we had a choice, that's the way we constructed a syndicate. Is that what, what is typically easy, easiest or the easiest way of doing it? I don't know. Um, we had a choice to do it um, because we could either have done a full VC round or that combination with private investors. And we clearly chose the combination with private investors because now, as I said, I believe we have the best of, of, of both worlds because we do have the smart money and, uh, and I have a lot of respect to these guys. And I know that will help us a lot to make this work out. Um, but at the same time, we have these private investors which are very loyal and have another interest too, which uh, puts, the, uh, uh, puts the company in, in the better position still. So two final questions. One is a strong generalization. Um, in your experience of working with US VCs and European VCs in discussions over this course of the round, can you make some high level generalizations of what are the, the differences and nuances between European VCs and US VCs? Culturally speaking, how they move, how quickly they move, how they don't move sometimes, questions they ask. What are some of those generalizations and differences? That's an interesting question. And, and, and I can't name any differences as such, to be honest. <laughs> Good. Um, okay. It might be a little bit embarrassing. I don't know. No. But, uh, but, you know, there, there have been so huge differences between different investors and their styles, totally. Um, probably what's on the US side is, is still a little bit faster and probably even more quicker to the point. But I'm not. I'm, I'm not sure this is actually true. I've tried to find some differences now. Um, I, I think it, it, it has been astonishing to see how diverse the different VCs are, or just the different people are, I got to know behind these VCs, um, and and how they how they approach it. And, you know, there have been VCs. There's been one VC which I I really didn't understand uh, who who was not willing to go into an NDA, um, and 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 so so basically. He kept asking me questions and I kept coming back and said, well, I can give you a very superficial answer, but if you don't sign an NDA, I can't give you the further answer. So why do you keep asking these questions? Um, let's go in an NDA and, and let's go for that. And they never did. And the end, they actually they objected um, and, and turned away uh, and gave me reasons, uh, which I told them, yeah, I, I, I was expecting these reasons because I was not able to tell you this extra story <laughs> because he never signed an NDA. Yeah. Um, uh, and then somebody told me, well, in the past, that was more common and that, that NDA were not signed. But at the same time, most of the VCs actually very quickly signed NDAs. We actually did dive very quick, very deeply, very quickly. Um, and, and that was quite the same. Yeah, I mean, that's good for the audience and the listeners to know, right? I mean, if, especially at those later stages, if traditional VC companies are acting very similar, similarly. Uh, that was my experience, at least. Yeah, between Europe. No, and no US. big difference between the US and Europe, at least. Good. That's that's good information and insight to know. Very last question for you then. Audience listening, um, your story is incredible from having left Medtronic, joining a startup company, having dealt with original investors, having built on a corporate investor, and then now raised a traditional VC round of financing with some um, private investors as well. Um, all those out there, just generalization on capital raises. What would you say to those entrepreneurs out there who are raising capital, who know nothing about raising capital, who want to get involved in that experience, who want to be the next generation Reinhardts who are possibly in Medtronic or Boston Scientific or Edwards right now and want to go take over a startup for the first time? What would you tell them about how to approach raising capital mentally, emotionally, spiritually? Thoughts? Emotionally, spiritually, um, uh, of course, yeah, you, have, you have to have resilience. Um, I think what first comes to my mind when you ask the question is, is number one, and it's a more general answer to this question is, number one, I think you, you need to be able to dream um, because a lot of, of what we're doing are built on the fact that somebody has an idea and then somebody dreams this idea further and uh, dreams it into a, a business opportunity. So you need to be able to dream, but at the same time, you need to have the own discipline, but also the team in place to actually make the stream into some real case. And then also being able to show with confidence that you can make it work because you have the people on board, which actually um, 
have the diversity and the uh, complementing competencies um, to get it done. And that overall as a team, you're passionate about it um, and, and you're motivated and you have this resilience to get it done. Because also what I clearly experienced, and that's probably you got it out of my story already, if not, I'm telling you, is you know you will you will get into a, a lot of closed doors on that journey and and it's not about being paralyzed in front of these closed doors and oh my god is this is all gonna stop and end here no it's about uh seeing the open door there's always an open door and I, this is an old story right um but it's truly what it is uh, and i've seen people being paralyzed in front of this door just closing instead of just then being open-minded to see this other door opening. And what I can also say is when I speak of a dream, it's about what we want to be with this journey. But ultimately, the plan A never works out. Uh, it never does. <laughs> um, so you have to have that, that agility, but also, um, you know, um, the team and, and, and all of this and, and resilience to, you know, understand. So plan A doesn't work. What's the plan B? Okay, C. So in fact, for, for Genesis, we had plan D by now, I would say. Um, and, and now that seems to be the pathway to success, we might actually have to embark into plan E in the end, because actually there's also still something which uh, we haven't foreseen and we have slightly to adjust it. But I think the success of startups I've followed is that ultimately they were not hung up on plan A. They were hung up with the idea and the dream at the end, um, but they were, they were agile enough to find another path around if the initial plan A didn't work out. And that's kind of the resilience which probably distincts those who get lost on the way uh, with those who actually make it work out. Um, that, that you have the dream, but you're flexible enough uh, to adjust to whatever you need to, to get there. Reinhard Krickel, CEO for Genesis. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your stories with us, not only about how you joined the entrepreneurial world, but also about Phagenesis and congratulations on your recent success with your recent round. So thank you very much for your time. This is MedTech Money, demystifying raising capital. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. If you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at projectmedtech.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.